Hey, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode eight of Human Things 2.0 podcast. Okay, by way of explanation, episode eight. Originally, we did episode six, and it ended up there. Oh my gosh! Like the, the just the tech issues that we've had all along. So we had to scrap an interview, refilm stuff, and and what happened was we had a very very long episode, or three good chunk size, ch three good chunks of episodes. So what we did decide to go with three. So this is the last part of what was originally supposed to be episode six, but is now episode eight. I am interviewing Megan Ullman from Life Training Institute about the book. Happening by Annie Arnaud. Just some background. Annie Arnaud won the Pul won the Nobel Prize for Literature last year, in large part because of the political. The Nobel prizes are intensely political prizes, and as Dobbs versus Jackson happened last year, they just so happened at the end of the year to give a Nobel Prize to an author who had had an abortion in 1963, and then some almost 40 years later gave a novelized version of her illegal abortion in Paris in 1963. It was originally written in French. It is a fairly dark read. I, I like to read things from people that disagree with me. The intention of reading this was so that we could get into the mindset of someone who disagrees with you, to understand where they're coming from better, to see if we can meet them in their circumstances, walk with them a little bit as they give us this gift of their life in this book and understand as best we can what leads people to get an abortion, even particularly back in 1963 when the procurement of that abortion was more difficult, when the circumstances of that abortion were more and grisly and horrifying, not just to the unborn child, which every abortion is destructive to the unborn child, but to everybody that had the, the horrifying displeasure to be involved with it. We will not go into those details, but I would encourage you, if, if, if you were in the area of trying to understand people who disagree with you to read this book, even the ugliness of the abortion, which is horrifying. And we will say that multiple times horrifying, but even with that ugliness, it gives us insight into the world that we no longer inhabit because it's, it is a world that doesn't exist anymore. The world that they're talking about a world that I think it's foolish to believe we're ever going back to. And I think there are people who are just plain wrong and, and, and pro-choices, which we'll mention shortly, agree with that view. There's some of them that recognize that. Uh, but that also we get wisdom. We get wisdom by understanding people. We get wisdom by understanding where they're coming from. Even when ultimately I do believe that in the course of this conversation we will discuss, this book, this worldview, this understanding of pregnancy, this approach, this justification fails, and it informs on itself that it is a lesser view of human reproduction and human life. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation. I know I enjoyed having it with Megan Allman. So we're going to welcome our guest now, Megan Allman of Life Training Institute. She works with Summit Ministries. She works with uh, Standard Reason and is just one of my favorite people on the planet. And that's when as soon as, as soon as I read this book, I knew I wanted to talk about this book. And the second I wanted to talk about this book happening by Annie Arnaud, a French writer, who in 2022 won the Nobel Prize for Literature, largely for this kind of work, but for this book. This is her novelized memoir of an illegal abortion that she attained in Paris, I believe in 1963, if I got the date right. Uh, and it, it 
it tracks with her from when she finds out she's pregnant as a student at that time, as a young scholar, uh, to back and forth between her reflections, having writing about this some, you know, almost 40 years after the fact. And, and it's, it's a book that I felt like when I said I wanted you immediately is because first of all, I know your passion for literature. I know your passion for writing. I know your passion for talking about culture and the beautiful things in it. In some way or another, for many people, I knew this was a beautiful story. Uh, it's not for me, uh, but it is for other people that, that don't share our view of the world and don't share our value of human life or don't see particularly nascent human life in the same way that you and I do. There is something beautiful or compelling, or at least this is meant to demonstrate the importance of abortion laws and what they don't want. When you hear, we'll never go back, this is what they don't want to go back to. This is a narrative memoir, uh, a novelized memoir of what they don't want to go back to. It's meant to tell both a grisly story in some sense, and for, for the author at least, an empowering story. So what I wanted to do was invite you on. And this is, as you know, as we talked about, this is the three things segment. So you are coming on to give us three things, three ways to understand this book, the importance of it, what, what you experienced when you came to it. The book is happening by Annie Arnaud. And so this is your, it's yours. Three things guide us through. What are the three things that struck you when you read this book? It's all mine. This is so funny, Jake. You know, your listeners don't, but I, I'm usually calling you to say, hey, Jay, tell me three things about this book that I need to understand. <laughs> um, so this is a, a reversal of roles here. Um, no, uh, I'm glad that I read the book. First of all, I want to say um, it was difficult to read. So thank you for inviting me into this journey, which I feel that my soul now needs a vacation yeah. um, because it was tough. It was tough to read. It was I feel like it scarred me a little bit just to just to go through it. Um, but I'm glad for it, given what we do and given the time that we're in and the answers we're having to provide. Um, interesting that you would call you know, say that some people would think it's beautiful. I agree with you. And I think that's the first thing that stood out as I read it. I thought, oh, my goodness, somebody's going to read this as a justification for their story, having yeah. either had an abortion or they're seeking an abortion or they want a country in which abortion is available and, and think that that is necessary in order for our country to love women well. We see that language a lot. We hear that language a lot. And um, as you and I know and have, and have talked about many times, and as I often defend when I teach on the subject of beauty, um, beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder. You know, if, if beauty were purely subjective in that way, if it's just up to you to decide and me to decide, if it were reduced to nothing but personal preference, then it's not really real. Yeah. Not in any kind of way that matters. And um, I think that the way that we experience the world and if we read history at all, beauty is far too important um, and too much a necessary part of the fabric of reality for us to dismiss it as purely subjective. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, in as much as this could be beautiful, because, you know, some philosophers would argue that since God made all things, they all kind of have this inherent trace of beauty to them, this this real aspect to them in part. Uh, but I don't think I could call this story beautiful. Um, if it is in part beautiful, it's only because in some ways it's truthful. In as much as we yeah. can see, she's telling the truth about her experience. Um but it is so far removed from what our understanding of 
goodness is, and with regard to the pro-life view, the beauty that bring to uh, telling people a story about who they are and why they matter. It's so far removed from those things, fearfully removed. Um, that it, it's beautiful, like Dorian Gray is beautiful, right? Like, yeah. like the secret is is hiding and lurking just beneath the surface. Um, so we can yeah. talk more about that in in a bit, but. Yeah. So reading the book, I think that, that coming at it, like, first of all, I'm an apologist in my training, a pro-life apologist. And so you and I, we could go through this book and pick it apart in terms of, oh, here she's confusing a moral claim with a preference claim about abortion. Here she's assuming that the unborn is not human, which the mm -hmm. scientific argument debunks. Here she's assuming the unborn has no value, which is philosophically it doesn't hold water in a way that would uh, support any kind of notion of human equality. Um, here she's making an assertion. Here she's attacking those who disagree with her. So we can go through it and do all of those things. But um, I mean, you, you, this this whole show and the reason I listen to it is it makes me better as an apologist. And so I kind of wanted to go different direction with it. Okay. Um, and we can touch on those things because they're going to be there. But I think the first thing, so number one, yep. is that I wanted to highlight the power of narrative. Yeah. So we talked about how much um, I love literature and you love literature. I often weave stories into teaching. In fact, I think I teach through stories quite mm -hmm. often. <laughs> um, I mean, you and I've talked at length about things like, you know, you can you learn a great deal about justice and mercy by reading a textbook. Um, but I think you could probably go and see Les Miserables performed on stage and walk away with a a deep understanding of justice and mercy that weren't overtly explained. And most, and, um, and I would, I would argue too, that most people will, will yeah. experience the latter more than the former. Most, most people will, yeah. uh, will, will evolve their ideas or, or, or of, of justice and mercy and things like, of that nature through narrative, through story. Although we would, you know, we, we both talk about and would know the, understand the importance of being able to balance narrative with, an understanding of truth and, and all of those things that we would apply through that academic pursuit of it. I do think most people, that's why this story is such a powerful story. I think what you mentioned right there, right? That the narrative yeah. is the way most people are going to, to form their relationship with the world is, is understanding yeah. it through narrative. And you cannot help but read this story and feel compassion for Annie or no in her story whether you agree with her or not, my heart broke for her. Um, yeah. You know, I started reading and I thought to myself, my goodness, I, I, I wasn't there in 1963. I wasn't part of her circle of influence and, and don't know if I ever will have an opportunity to talk to her face to face. But you can't help but ask yourself from my standpoint, encountering this narrative, you know, if I had been there, would I have been the friend that said, whoa, wait a second, wait a second, this is not truthful, this is not good. Um, or, yeah. or do you realize you're assuming these, like, where were those people in her and life? And to clarify for the um, audience too, from the moment she finds out she's pregnant, it is yeah. negative. I mean, it is, it is all negative. Yeah. Her, her, her view of it, her understanding yet. of it. <laughs> she is, she is, I mean, she, the language was strong. She, um, it, the, the, it was the fetus, it. Um, never once like the baby, right? It was yeah. always it, the fetus, um, this entity, this thing. Uh, and when she referred to it, the language was it, 
it has to die. Yes. It must be destroyed. Whatever the cost, this was always going to be the outcome. Like yep. she was relentless in seeking out the abortion and was not going to take no for an answer. Um, so whatever it was that, you know, as we probably uncover some of this later, but that she wanted, whatever her expectation was, she was going to have the abortion. Yes. She was not going to release this life that she was clinging to. She uh, saw she it as her future versus this thing that had been introduced into her path and that the two were opposed to each other. And, and that's the language that she uses all the way through, right? There's the person she and, was before this happened, yeah. the happening, right? The, the, the happening is the name of the book oh. Bef before pregnancy can happened. Just, can we just note that for a second, the happening, right? Uh, that it bothered me. Cause when I, when I picked up the book, when I ordered it, you just called me and you said, read this book. You're going to, we're going to do a show over it. Is that a good idea to you? And I said, that sounds great. I'm always up yeah. for a book recommendation from you. So I picked it up. It said happening. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm about to read a story of a young woman who's something happened to her. She was assaulted. Like this wasn't her choosing. This wasn't her doing. And now she's got this horrific, you know, reality in front of her based on evil that was done to her. Um, Annie Arnaud was not assaulted. No. Not in, at least not in this part of the narrative. Uh, she willfully chose a life that was counter to what she called the regressive sexual ethic of the 50s, which she had yep. come out of. She wanted this kind of free love. She, and I think she talked a little bit about that. She yes. said lovemaking and Seeing freedom. Seeing herself as this lovemaking, you know, intellectual. That, that yeah. Her life was yes. going to be full of books and making love and freedom. Yes. Um, so she walked into this uh, with some understanding, at least, that this could be an outcome, though she denied that. She of said, course. oh, I never expected this. Wait, uh, yeah. Let's just stop um, there for a second, too. Let's, I want to come, because I actually had a conversation in front of a group of college students about that this weekend, where, where we were mm -hmm. discussing some elements of it. And, and it goes back to, on a side note, right, when we talk about uh, the, the faith, the Christian faith, and people say, well, now we know that people who aren't, who haven't had sex, don't have babies, but they knew that then, right? They, I mean, it, they, they knew that then they weren't stupid. There's a reason why it became an, an, an incident worthy of reporting because they were well aware that there was a connection between sex and pregnancy back then all through human history, the modern history where we have recordings of things, they understand there's a connection between sex and pregnancy. So, so in that sense of, for, for in this modern world where we want to make sex something that exists purely for our pleasure with no consequences. And that's the two levels of con there's multiple levels. Like it's, it's fraught with complication, right? There's, there's not just pregnancy. There's not just infection and disease, but there's also emotional and spiritual complication that comes through. through. It's just a, it's an act that is, that is deeply human, deeply personal, yeah. deeply spiritual, and by the way, procreative by nature. And so for anybody to say, I didn't see this coming, like as if this just happened to me, how did you not see it coming? Only someone who has bought into a view of sex that is, is fairly modern uh, and that is completely disassociated from all of these other complications that go with a, a belief about human beings that we can ride each other like amusement park rides. And that there's no consequences <laughs> for that. And, and that's a new thing. That, or, and it's never been true. And it's never been a group of people that didn't understand that connection. So, so that's funny to me, this idea that she's surprised, right? I had sex and there was a, 
a child, as if that was the way every human being that has ever existed throughout all of human history came into being. Came into being, right. Yeah. No, I think, so that, that actually, that that's a big part of the second point I want to make. So let me, let me see if okay. I can seamlessly take us there, because so much yes to what you just said. Um, the title, title, I was like, this is a, this is, this is not right. <laughs> this yeah. did not just happen to you. And the idea that the abortion happened to her as if she did not relentlessly seek it out, take herself to Paris, walk up those stairs into this woman's apartment and go through with it um, all the way. So all yeah. of that being the case was just, it's, it's nuts. Um, you're, and your, your terminology, so relentlessly seeking it out, if anything, is is a is is underplaying it right i mean she you're right that is yeah. the best term she relentlessly pursued this abortion mm -hmm. yeah 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 she did um i think that so with regard to just back to that narrative the idea of narrative and someone approaching the story with the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder the just subjective therefore not really real and with the idea um given the the thought of our day that morality is also up to the individual to decide. Um, the moral relativism yes. that we're steeped in. Um, thank you, postmodernism and all that came before it didn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, but that's when we encounter people oftentimes, especially with regard to abortion, because it is so often framed this way in our nation, uh, people think this is up to me to choose for myself, decide for myself. The rightness or wrongness of this is mine and you cannot press your morality on me. So. When someone comes to a story like this with those things held tightly in two fists, this story is going to be powerful to them in such a way that it will justify the thing that they want to be, yeah. which is this, um, you know, intentional taking of innocent human life um, as abortion is defined. Um, so all that to say, narratives are powerful things and the ones that have that kind of influence on us um, I was thinking about this actually just past weekend. I spent the weekend near Philadelphia, which is not exactly like a, a life, you know, hub. Um, yeah. And I was talking with a number of students as you were at your recent event. And I cannot tell you right now, because so much of what we're doing right now is answering the lies that are in circulation after Roe was overturned last Yes. Um, yeah. the, the idea, the idea is that abortion, that now this has become a battleground where women are going to be harmed and they're going to die. And we have a nation that's turned anti-woman and these young yeah. people, um, you know, one after the other coming up to me going, you know, I was pro-life coming from Christian backgrounds and saying, but I was on social media and I saw all that was unfolding and things that people were saying. And then I, I kind of shifted in my stance because I don't want to be against freedom against women when I'm a and, woman, you know, yeah, and I don't want to cause things like what happened in this book to happen. I think is a lot of the time they're thinking too. That's why I said, right. this is when they say we don't, we're not going back. This book is what they're claiming. They're not going back to, or the, the story yeah. that they're talking about. And, and in some way, and I've, I've mentioned this multiple times a lot recently uh, in the sense that there. I quote a particular article and it's, it's interesting. I hate to quote articles that I wrote because it, it sounds self-serving, but sometimes it's just because I found the information there. And so I can keep returning to it over and over when I need it. And so one of the things that I think is interesting when we talk about students who say, or, or young people, anybody that we encounter that says, 
I, I don't want to, uh, just to take one part of what you just encountered, I don't want yeah. to be responsible for forcing people back to a place where women die. It's one of the things that I've addressed actually in a letter that we, we called the letter that I, I addressed. And it's going to be a whole show that where I address just this letter that I got with, with justifications for abortion. And in there, they talk about women will die. And so one of the things that I quote is uh, a quote from Abigail R. Aiken, a, Abigail R. A. Aiken at the University of Texas at Austin, where she said back in 2019, when you say a self-managed abortion, people think about a coat hanger or a back alley abortion. The reality is we're sitting here in 2019 and it's not like that anymore. You can go online and you can fill out a form and you can get this safe and effective technology delivered to your home. The safe and effective technology that she's referencing is RU486. That which the other side would like to believe or like to claim is safer than Tylenol. Now I have problems with those claims and I have issues with those claims, but they, but one of the things in, in the heading of the article that I wrote, this comes up with dueling responses. One thing we can't do is allow them to play both narratives at the same time, to try to stoke fears in people by saying women will die, women will die. And then at the other side of their mouth, tell everybody, are you 486? The 486-2-pill protocol is safer than Tylenol. It's the easiest thing in the world to get. You can order it through mail. You can have your abortion at home and nobody else has to know about it at all. And so in the one sense, this book is anachronistic then. If we were to take Abigail Aiken at her word, then the warning that this book is providing is an anachronistic warning. It's pointing back to a time that we won't be returning to. Now, I, again, I said, right. we'll bring up, you and I have every successful abortion destroys an innocent human life. There's no such thing as a right. safe abortion by definition. When somebody says we want abortion to be safe, the question is safe for whom? Because it's not safe for them. It, it, it may yes. be more efficient and we, 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 we certainly grew, not may, we have certainly grown in the last 100 plus years, 150 years, more efficient at performing abortions in so much as we are, we're better at killing the innocent life without killing the mother at the same time. That is certainly right. true. That is inarguably and statistically true. And what but I hear you saying, yes. There, there is no safe abortion, but they can't say what what would that young person say? Well, I don't want to create an environment where women are dying, and at the same, and then uh, the other side of their mouth say, "But that won't ever happen because we're going to be able to send you pills, and these pills are safer than Tylenol, and abortion is safer than childbirth, and it's all the safest, easiest, and in some sense the most natural thing on earth." You don't get both of those arguments at the same time; they don't fit together. Right? Nope, not at all. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, I think just a couple things that come to mind even from that. What I'm hearing you saying is, in a sick kind of way, we're just getting better at abortion. And yes. so this whole idea of the, the, you know, the, what Annie or no experience with the, the probe and the whole, it was just, it's horrific. So Horrifying. You know, warning there, um, you may not want to subject yourself to reading that. Um, no, we're not going to go back to that era because of what's available to us. And I hope that we can move away from that era for some of the things that we'll continue discussing here, but yeah, just, so with regard to that in thinking through just that, um, Time after time this weekend, you know, we presented the pro-life case to these people, one after the other, they came up and I heard the same thing. Thank you so much for addressing that. I have not heard anything that clear with regard mm. to this. I had shifted in my stance, but no more. Great. This just makes sense over and over and over again. Um, 
And I, I mean, Jay, just there was a woman who came up who had been at the conference last year where we presented the pro-life case overtly. This year, I'm doing more of an inside-out approach where I'm presenting them um, with kind of the six ways that are very common right now. And I've pulled current examples of memes and video clips and things like that so they can kind of see these um, abortion arguments in action. Yeah. Uh, so we're refuting them that way. But last year, I had an overt pro-life case. Um, I met a woman named Dana. And uh, she's a nurse who heard the pro-life case in the midst of the firestorm that was last year and decided, I need to go work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. She found me and let me know. I mean, three lives were saved last week. Last week, wow. three women chose life. Um, and then she's, you know, she's doing the ultrasounds and watching this happen. And those are the stories that are not being told. Those yeah. are the narratives that we're not hearing. And you would be shocked to know, I, again, that one after the other of people coming to me and me telling them, have you ever heard of a pregnancy resource center? And they have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, They've isn't that amazing? Heard of it, it's crazy to, and, and the moment that they find out that not only are there, you know, I, I don't even know how many at this point in time, prior to the overturn of Roe v. Wade, they outnumbered providers at least five to one. Yes. Um, and they're largely volunteer run, giving away millions, millions of dollars worth of supplies. And not just until the baby's born, but well into that young child's life to mom and to baby and to her children that she already has. And they're looking at me going, why haven't I heard of this? Yeah, I think, I, I I think at this. one point the number was like oh. 2,300 over 50 states, right? I mean, 2,300 over 50 states. Uh, so, I mean, so... Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. and, and, and some of that is obviously intentional. I can remember years ago, years ago, this was that I was when I was in the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and I would go to these meetings, and I was doing it on behalf of the nonprofit. Um, it was a pregnancy resource center where I actually am still on the board of directors, worked for three years as a development coordinator. And when I was telling people about what we did, when I was telling people about what we did, mm -hmm. they would get very excited. And then I would yeah. tell people what we were. Oh, we're a pregnancy resource center. And I would get, they, they could shift immediately, right? The idea oh, of what we wow. did excited them. If you broke it down mm -hmm. into the components of how we served our community, every person, liberal, conservative, thought that was great. Oh, you're doing great things. Mm -hmm. That is so wonderful. You're teaching women. You're supplying them with needs. You're giving them help that... This is amazing stuff. We are so behind you. And then I would say what we were, and they would immediately change. Y'all are the bad guys. Y'all oh are the goodness. evil liars. You are the people that are out there trying to trick people into not getting abortions. Uh, you trick no. people into not getting abortions. It's not like they don't realize they're not getting an abortion. I don't. I mean, it, how is no. offering them alternatives that are more life affirming tricking them? I cannot stand that kind of language. You have tricked them into not getting an abortion as if getting an abortion in and of itself were some end that people wanted. I, I addressed, I'm going to turn it back over to you in just a second, but I addressed this video response to when Jane Fonda on the view said that she wanted to, she was thinking about murdering and nobody took it seriously. I mean, we know she was, she was joking. It was, it was just a yeah. horrible joke. It was a, it was an inappropriate joke, but these people afterwards were talking that were, were reviewing what she'd said and giving her moral and political cover for it. One of them said, I'm worried about my daughter growing up in a world 
where she won't have access to abortion. And all I could think of when I heard that is like, you want your, your daughter to get it? Is that, you can't possibly mean what you just said. Nobody grows up thinking, man, I hope my daughter gets pregnant one day and is able to get an abortion. That's my highest hope for them. And those stupid pregnancy centers better not trick her and they're not getting them by supplying her needs and meeting her in a place of, of crisis. So yeah, it is, it is crazy to me that people don't know they exist. And then even when they do know that they exist, what they think about them has been, the, the well has been so poisoned that they're not capable of understanding them by virtue of what they do, only by virtue of what they represent. And that comes from the power of the narrative they've chosen to hear and believe. Yeah. Um, and even just with regard to the people that would say that the, these women are being tricked by pregnancy resource centers, just like Annie Renault saying that this happened to her these are low views of women. We've covered that before too, you and I, in our teaching with audiences. This assumes that women are not intelligent enough to know that the outcome of sex could be pregnancy or mm. that if they walk into this, this scenario, what happens? I think what they're trying to get out, because I do think that most of the arguments we hear are driven by compassion, um, albeit a, 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 like it's, it's a compassion that would not extend to the unborn, of course. Um, I think that that, that what they're what they're getting after there is kind of that that, that the idea that she didn't feel that she had a place else to go that she felt like she didn't have a choice um like i i get that but say that not yeah, this your series of events has narrowed her path into such a way that she is compelled to do something there are no options right right well Point two, so number two, uh, deals with a little bit of what we touched on with sexual ethics. Um, and I say that because when I get into these conversations and what we'll talk about in the second point, these are not the reasons that abortion is wrong. Abortion is wrong because Correct. it intentionally kills an innocent human being. Um, but many times you talk to bright students and they see that abortion does not exist in a vacuum. And they're going, well, well, wait, there's a whole lot more wrong underneath this led us to this place. Yes. Uh, and part of that was case in point with Annie Arnaud's story, the repressive sexual ethic of the 50s that led to this idea that she was going to leave that behind. And even later in her story, leave religion behind because it was in some way holding her back from what she um, what she would term freedom. And so thinking about definitions of freedom and love, both of those tie into how we understand what is sex and what is it for. Um, you know, I'm in kind of in that state right now with my uh, almost 11 year old and my 17 year old. She just turned 17 yesterday. So no. yes, Neely oh Allman is that 17. Is insane. <laughs> Neely is 17. Ugh. I know it's crazy. Um, yeah. It's like moment I'm of silence so to pray old. for my kid. I'm, I'm kidding. so old. <laughs> Um, no, you're not, but they're, they're both in that place where they're asking these types of questions, particularly with regard to sex and particularly because Tripp and I, um, my husband runs a gap year school with Summit yep. Ministries. And so we spend a large portion of our time with young 20 somethings. And so there are things introduced to our children, probably earlier than we wanted them to be introduced to our children, which kind of came with the territory of accepting this job. And we did think through that possibility. So. Um, we're having these conversations and we're having them often and we're having them in a very straightforward manner, which I know is no, you're no stranger to that because I know your wife. <laughs> uh, Tracy is um, the, the, uh, the queen of, of, of whatever you ask, you will get a forensic and biologically correct answer 
in as blunt a form as possible uh, and, and has always been that way, right? It is, and it is stunning yeah. to me, right? I mean, we were, <laughs> I can't even tell you, but we were like watching a movie the other day and there was some uh, hinting about what was going on and, and Tracy's like, we're going to just skip that. And so it was like, okay, we're skipping it to preserve Nika's childhood innocence, right? My 14-year-old daughter, who yeah. just a lovely young lady, and she doesn't want to see that sort of stuff anyway. So, so Tracy knows what's coming on. She edits it. But as she edits it, she turns around and explains in detail the sexual act that was going to be on the screen so that she can understand. So what was the value then in skipping it, honey? I mean, what did we actually accomplish? Because, but, but there's no shyness. I will say this before turning it right back over to you. We're yeah. only now, I'm only now appreciating the benefit of what my wife did all throughout our children child other young childhood because now as adults and two of my children are adults now yeah. they come back and they ask what to me can be some uncomfortable questions and but they feel completely free to do so because yes. they know that the parent her parents his parents those two know they are not afraid of this particularly mom that there's nothing yeah. that you can talk about that they would we have beat into their heads, not, not literally beat in their heads, but, but over years have tried to help them to understand that the, the thing that we provide for them is protection and safety and information in a way that's safe for them to come to it. And now they do. And, and that is yeah. a lovely thing to know that they are not, they're still not talking just to other people, that they bring very intimate discussions to the table. And we're able to sit down yeah. and say, okay, well, let's talk about that. But that comes from that's those wonderful. Sorts of yeah. yeah. And we, we, from the early on with our kids, um, we weren't, we weren't having those conversations super early, but we knew early on Trip and I, that we wanted to present sex as something that was good and beautiful, that we would tell the truth about it. Yep. Um, we would explain God's limits around it and the reasons yep. for those limits as much as we can even understand, because to be honest with you, Jay, even as a, an adult now, like I'm reaching midlife and I am reading things and studying because I'm teaching on these subjects. And I just have to say, the more I study, the more beautiful it becomes. Yeah. I mean, mind blowingly, scandalously beautiful as a picture of the Trinity, as a picture of God and his intimacy with us as his love, as his um, safety, all of those things um, as a wild and dangerous thing, except when it's in the proper confines. And then it yeah. does all of the life nourishing and giving and building and making um, that is just, it's, it's a, it's a profound mystery. And that's barely does it justice to say it those far. words. It, it, I agree with you. It, I'm, I'm, I assume I'm not going to live to be 104. So I'm past midlife, but um, I think that we're there. We're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I think what you just touched on is such an important point, because as we're discussing what the laws like and Part of what drives Annie Arnault is the loss of this freedom. And in some ways she understands it as sexual freedom. That's a part of it, right? right? It's, it's professional, it's academic, it's intellectual freedom. And, and then there's also a sexual freedom that she doesn't want to lose through this idea of, of pregnancy and having kids. But I can say this, as you talk about the beauty of it growing, one of the things that I think is amazing is, is the older you get and the more I start to see studies that support this, that you understand that sex in its proper context is something that those who never get to experience it as proper context will never understand how great it can be. And, and, and I don't mean, yeah. I, there's this, if you only see it 
as something that, as a as I mentioned earlier, is like a ride at an amusement park, and you're going to get your thrill and move on. Then you don't understand. And there was a study that came out, I think it was a year ago, that I remember reading. And I wish I could find if I find it, I'll link it up on the the YouTube channel for this. But well, where they said the key to long and productive and enjoyable sex life, where these people have the best sex lives, they tend to be couples who have been together, who are intimate, who trust each other, who keep all of that to themselves. They don't go around telling everybody about what they're doing all the time, but that they enjoy this very long, very productive, very enjoyable sex life that that is, is constantly growing their intimacy of their relationship. And so this is a way those who people only enjoy it on a superficial basis, you don't even know how great it can get, right? You have no idea yeah. how good it can be because you treat it so shabbily. And if you only understood yeah. in the proper context, the way that it can be a part of a productive relationship, it's never meant to be something we look down on and that, that's shameful yeah. in that sense. Not in that sense. It's something beautiful and symbolic and, and, and good and fun. Um, <laughs> so so that's that too. Right? Well, that's, People know it's fun. That's yeah, but that's what they're that's after. Not, yeah, um, they're not missing that part of it. You're right. Us, <laughs> correction. No, taken. I think that's what they want. No, it's okay. But the the um, I think so. Yeah. Again, just to loop at point number one with narrative, right? People adopt the narrative because of what they see and hear from our culture that single sex is the most exciting. When every single statistical study study will show you that married people not only have the most sex, they're only eclipsed by cohabiting couples for the first year of their relationship. Yeah. And then after that, married people's sex goes through the roof in terms of it's just far more frequent, but self-reported sexual satisfaction is far greater among married couples. Just the other two categories, single and cohabiting out of the water. Um, I think that's worth noting because these are not, they're just statistics from completely non-biased sources. They just tell us the truth, almost like this stuff is, true or something yeah. um which is you know as if it matches up and re- with reality with yeah. reality <laughs> that was musical that was we were like harmonized um anyway but with annie or no looking at this the two things that um, i've been running into frequently and no different from this story from this book um i'm hearing a lot of you know what christians are opposed to love christians are opposed to freedom Christians don't want people to be, to have love and to have freedom. Like this is what we're hearing. That's the narrative. And I'm kind of to the point now where I almost want to say, you know what? I think you're right. With regard to what you mean by love and freedom. Yeah. It's that, that kind of like what uh, our mutual friend, my boss, Scott Klusendorf does with the, if, you know, all these things, if the unborn isn't human kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so a qualifier here, Christians are opposed to love that is cheap. Christianity, if love is something, and I think we can look at, I believe it's first John, you might have to correct me on the particular passage, because this is where my mind goes. Um, I've been homeschooling this morning. So I've already read, you know, Oliver Cromwell history and everything. I'm just I'm kind of whatever. But um, love is essentially Christ on the cross. This is love, he said, that Jesus would die for us while we were yet sinners. Um, And I think that you know, Bujewski, uh, Jay Bujewski would he, he kind of defines it. I'm going to paraphrase his definition. He says, "Love, understanding it in that way, the Christian understanding of love is sacrificial giving for the true good of the other." Mm-hmm. Like if that's what's love, 
then it's not just some deep feeling of affection that happens to me. I'm not some passive recipient. Yes. I am an active participant and it, it costs me something. I mean, that's Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Right? Grace is costly because it costs his life and it is grace because it gives him the only true life in the cost of discipleship. Um, but I'm like, I'm to the point there where I'm, and again, I, I'm reading this as someone who's like, I wanted to be her friend. I wanted to say this making love that you're talking about. This isn't love. Yeah. This is nothing like love. In it, fact, it, it opens the, their mind you. up for us, right? That's the great thing about novels when I tell people who, who <laughs> refuse them. It's like they, it opens up our mind so that we can see how they're processing yeah. the world. And, and to understand how people who disagree with us about abortion and who seek it out as a good, understand it to be a good, Annie Arnaud opens up her mind for us. And I think you bring up a great point there. Your response to her opening up her mind was, oh my gosh, she needed a friend. Yes. She needed a friend. And in the same way you encounter people in novels, like my daughter's reading Sense and Sensibility right now. She just finished Pride and Prejudice Day. She's raving about it. And for her birthday last night, that's what she wanted to watch. And so we did, and it was glorious. Um, but in Sense and Sensibility, you encounter the character Willoughby, who is not a good man, right? And, and so in, in this way, we encounter these characters and they, they teach us whether it's through their moral failures or their goodness or their choices or whatever it happens to be. But Annie Arnaud is a real person. And still, like you said, because we encounter her in a, a novel of sorts, we're, we're, we're gathering something, we're learning something. Yeah. Um, but that's not love. And with regard to freedom, this freedom, this intellectual freedom that she can pursue whatever she wants and not reap consequences. Um, which I think is kind of most of our culture's understanding of freedom right now. Her uh, Sean McDowell, you know, he wrote Chasing Love recently, which is such a wonderful book to walk through with young people mm. uh, with her sexual ethics. It's written for them and to them in a voice where, you know, you're reading it and, you're, and you can tell this is written for a young adult. Um, and I went through it with my daughter and it was such a privilege. And what I love about what Sean did is that he walked through this idea of freedom. He walked through defining terms and he spent some time there before he delved into what are the major sexual issues of our day and how do we think about them well. He laid the framework and freedom is one of those things. Most of our culture thinks that freedom is freedom from. I want freedom that I wanna be able to do whatever I want, this kind of radical autonomy yep. and there be no consequences. But that is not the type of freedom that Scrooge talks about, nor is it the type of freedom that the, you know, the, the classical writers or the ancient writers would have talked about. You know, the philosophers yeah. um, talked about free for. There's a whole other side of the coin that's being missed entirely by these assumptions. We don't have this kind of radical autonomy because there are limits given, built into the fiber of the universe, which would suggest that it was made that way. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't we are be, limited. it isn't good to our flourishing. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to our flourishing, not just either individually or as a community, right? I mean, we don't flourish yeah. and, and, and without that flourishing, we'll never figure out, that, I mean, that's, you know, going back to natural all things, the goods to which we're ordered and human flourishing and those, yeah. those sorts of things. But, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. It, it's that, that kind of, the, if you understand the pursuit of happiness, is just the pursuit of pleasure or, 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 or satisfaction, then you don't understand what they actually meant. They were talking about the pursuit of human flourishing in your community mm -hmm. and for you to, to be free without restriction to determine what you're capable of being within the context yep. of what it means to be a flourishing human being in a flourishing environment. 
And and if you and a free society, uh, a free society would have the ability for us to pursue those things which we ought, um, given yes. those limitations and how we're made, so that we can flourish and be well. Yeah, we're and I'm going to be doing an episode soon about narcissism, or at least a section of an episode about narcissism, because I've read, I've done a little reading about it, read a book about it, and some other things, mm-hmm. just as an interesting. And I think one of the going back to before we move on, going back to something you said earlier when you were talking about the idea of somebody coming to this book and seeing something beautiful, but the beauty is objective, as you were saying. You said you're pushing back on my on what I said there, which right, rightly pushing back on what I said. That some people will see this as beautiful, and you're like, but be- but beauty is an objective thing, and you can't just call whatever you want to call it beautiful. And at the end of the day, this story is horrifying. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the episode of when the abortion actually happens. I won't describe it because I wouldn't do that to an audience. It is horrifying. I am scarred forever having read it. And it's even worse to believe that there were people that actually had the the, one of the people who had to be right next to her while it was going on was somebody who was morally opposed to abortion. And and, in one of those things that I wanted to go back to is I've been studying narcissism is that I could see how somebody could look at this, though, and see it as beautiful if they see themselves in it. And in the sense that if we live. We live in a world where, statistically speaking, according to these clinical psychologists, narcissism has been growing at the same as obesity in the United States. So at the same time you've seen this rise in obesity, that we're the most obese nation that's probably ever lived on the face of the earth, we're also the most narcissistic nation that's ever existed on the face of the earth. These things have been tracking with each other over decades. I even mentioned this recently to some friend of mine who's more progressive, and they said, well, we had four years in office of somebody demonstrating narcissism. But that's a short view. If you you think Trump is responsible for narcissism in the United States, States, you don't understand that we're talking about three decades of narcissistic growth, not four years. Trump is the product of narcissism. He's not the, I mean, what, what we've seen in politics is the result of this. And it's not just him, it's all of them. And many of the things that are going on and some of the, th- and the ways that they, they talk and the way that they refuse correction. And so for somebody who's narcissistic and who sees this as an expression of themselves, I could see them, them saying, well, this is beautiful. Why? Because it's me. And because one of the traits that we find with narcissists is they're incapable of seeing their own flaws. Uh, they, they think of themselves so highly that even the things that are negative about themselves, they see if their attention getting things, if they draw attention to them, they're still positive things. There was one story in a book that I read about narcissism where they had done this TV show and they had this guy on this reality show who just came across so awful that the producers went to him and said, look, we don't even want to air this. This will ruin you in society if we actually air this. And he was incapable of understanding why the world knowing he was like this would be negative because all he understood as himself was through this narcissistic personality disorder where he believed himself to be better, smarter, greater than everybody and worthy of all the tension that he would get. And when he said, they're just going to see how great I am. And the producers that they will hate you. Everyone will hate you when they see this. We're begging you to, to not allow us to release it because we're going to release it unless you do that. And ultimately they did and it ruined the guy's life. And so I think when somebody looks at this work from that lens, right, where they're saying, this is me, this is my story, this is the kind of person I am. If they're not capable of evaluating that outside of yourself, which narcissists can't, they, they, they simply can't, they don't have that ability. Then I can see why they would look at that and say, it's beautiful. Why it's beautiful is because of me and I'm beautiful. No matter what you say, no matter how you evaluate me, yeah. no matter what words come from the outside, I'm not capable of being corrected. It's a, it's a, it's an epidemic of, of, of what's going on in our culture right now. And not always to that extreme, but just different levels of which narcissism has expressed itself. I said, it's tracked yeah. with obesity. So. Oh yeah. No, this is, I mean, this, 
the, the most recent thing I've read was Carl Truman on this, on the self-expressionist type of thinking, which is yes. not equal to narcissism, but I think feeds it. Um, and how we've come to the point where that's really the way of things right now. That the rise I and triumph of the I modern have. self. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Or the everyone on earth should read that book. More, yes. Um, so you can start with Strange New World if that one looks a little world, intimidating. Yes. I have both, um, and they're both excellent. Um, but the yeah, just just with with exactly to your point, the idea that we could it, it completely counter to what we just talked about—that there's a limit to the world, there's a limit to us as human beings. That these things are built into the reality in which we have been placed. We're all in the same reality. The ideas that have come down through the historical pike, like if you pull on the major strands enough, you can kind of see how we've come to a place where people have adopted the idea that they can simply construct their own reality. And uh, and, and when that happens, I think we have Chesterton's maniac. I mean, he called yep. it mid 20th century, you know, <laughs> he's yep. like that guy, the one that says, oh, he'll be fine. He believes in himself. No, he's gonna be insane. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> if that's truly his philosophy and that's all there is to it. Now he was taking something to its logical extreme there. Um, but yeah, that there's that, that we would never look outside of ourselves, but rather we would rationalize our own tiny universes and then come to find out when we meet reality, oh Jay, it just, it, it hurts my heart in so many ways. Cause on the one hand you discover your universe was not big enough. Yes. That's, that's the hard part. But the second part is when you discover how big the universe is. I mean, it to remake yourself to have to. You know, this is why I'm so grateful that Christianity is true in the way that it is, because that's all we have. We have to fall back and go, God, you had it right all along. And I tried, but I can't do I am not God. I need your grace and I need your help and I need you to show me how do I even navigate this world? It's humility. Yeah, um, and you know what, when, when you're talking, and getting back to the book too, one of the things is we've discussed yeah. a couple of times already, the graphic and disgusting and, and horrifying nature mm -hmm. of the abortion incident in the book. And I was not prepared for that. I, I gotta tell you, I was, I was caught off guard. It was already a dark, uh -huh. grim read of this woman who sees only negatives to being pregnant. All, uh, all of her experience in pregnancy is, is seen through the lens of this negativity, this thing and, and infringing on her life, her freedom, her, her view or vision of herself and all of these things that were going on. But one of the things that struck me and strikes me oftentimes, and I've mentioned this on another show when I was talking about abortionists, that the, you would like to think that somebody who's pro-abortion would like to think that the abortionists were these heroes and they tell on themselves all the time that they're not heroes by their behavior, by their action, by their history. They, con they continuously inform us. They inform on themselves to us by their character, that they are not heroes, that they're morally broken people that are doing something unjust. And that's not the only unjust thing they're usually doing. There's usually a, a bunch of other things that, that, that seem to coalesce around them. So in the same thing, as we have a story that's meant to justify a way, an approach to abortion, an idea, a fear of what the world used to be and an inspiration of what it could be as far as the freedom to getting abortion, I feel like the story tells on itself in the same way. It's so yeah. violent. It's so gruesome. It's so horrifying that as I read it, even as somebody who's trying my best to feel empathy for everybody involved in it and what's going on, I see only selfishness. 
I yeah. see only violence. I see only injustice. I only see people that are self-interested in pursuing their own self-interest throughout all of this. And as you see it culminate in this horrifying moment, and I'm going to let you talk more about this because I don't want to give away anywhere where you might be going. The way that she processes that event, mm-hmm. what happened to me is you, you tell on yourself, you tell yeah. on yourself when you, when you justify, when you try to justify what just happened, what we just experienced. Yeah. And I, I mean, you've, I've heard you say it many times. So in, in this way, you've taught me that when somebody tells you who they are, you should believe them. Heck yeah. Um, no, I think that, but the only way to go back, cause yes, the only way, the only, but the only way we can see that is by looking outside of ourselves, that this is selfish, that this is, and my point, this, you just set it up so beautifully. Um, no matter how badly she wants it to be, no matter how wonderfully she spins words, um, no matter how you know much she put honesty on the page, and and I, I appreciate honesty. I do. Yes. Um, it is. If, if anything can be said, this is an honest book. This is an honest yes. work. Yes. Painfully but it can, honest. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it can never be beautiful, and that's the third thing I think I have to say is. You know, you and I and and many of those who are listening are willing and ready to read those, to listen to those with whom we disagree. And I think that's so important, make us better, right? It, it makes us check ourselves and, and see, are we wrong about this? Are we approaching this in a wrong way? Do we need to rethink this idea? That's what human beings are supposed to do through healthy discourse is pursue what is true together. Um, and so we're willing to do that. So, uh, you know, in reading it, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that we did. But so often when I read those with whom I disagree, their writing can be absolutely, you know, enticing, I guess is the word. Um, it, it, I can read and go, wow, I think that, you know, Dr. David Boonin and I might be friends. I, he just has such a wonderful way with his flow of writing or with making of a sentence. Um, I think the thing about what I've read of Kate Greasley so far, who is an up and coming pro-choice scholar. She's been around yep. for a little while, but I think her work is only going to grow. I talked um, about her more I mean, than I, I, Boonin and Greasley. I talk about the best, but I am, I am oddly enough, probably one of the biggest Greasley fans in the world, even though I disagree with her <laughs> profoundly. I, I, what, what she yeah. argues well, she argues as well as anybody. I've encountered. Yes. It's just, and then she mm-hmm. just goes in places I can't go with you. Right. I'm like, and that's you know. what it did. I was mm-hmm. sitting on the back deck of our how, uh, cabin we have in another part of Colorado, uh, during the fall semester, reading one of her works and the whole time, like, I just feel like we would have a great discussion. The two of us, I bet we would be friends. Um, however, what struck me her work as I was reading, it was just this one profound thought. This is not beautiful. And it can never be. It, it can't be. It's the facade. It sounds intelligent and smart. Um, well, it's the same thing, but it sounds those things. It sounds enticing. It sounds, um, uh, you know, somebody could read it and be compelled to go, wow, maybe she's right. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, like Dorian Gray and the picture in the upper room that told the truth, I think once that veneer is just you can peer past it just a little bit. You see, this is death. Yeah, this is yeah. A, it's a white, oh my gosh, a white yes. tomb. 
Yeah, and at um, least she did. By the way, at least she was honest about that. That that's a puzzling honesty. I know. I know for her, probably the grisly nature of the abortion feeds the sense that this should not happen again. And as a result, abortion ought to be legal so that no woman's ever enforced to endure what she had to endure. Uh, but you know, I took it even one step further than that. That this should not happen again, at all. That this type of destructive right. behavior is horrifying. Not not that you need to be able to do it in a more efficient manner, but we just should not be in that business at all as human beings. Exactly, exactly. And one day I pray that she will get there. And, 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 and how that, did she, you? Know, let's get back to this. Though, right? I, want, I want you to talk about this. The, uh-huh. what, what she said. What remember when she says that it it was the it was the birth, the abortion was a birth. And she talked about it being the, the birth of, of her, this, of the, of her yeah. life. Right. It was the, yeah. the, this horrifying destructive act. She sees as yeah. the beginning of something beautiful. Oh, wonderful. just, I get chills. I chills when you say it chills when I read it the first time and thinking, Oh, like this, mm, it, 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 a couple things come to mind. One, the screw tape letters came to mind. Mm. Um, because when Lewis was writing them, he said that it was the hardest book that he had to write because he had to put himself in the mind of one who was trying to unravel all that was good and true and beautiful, right? Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was never the overt way. It was always, oh, we'll give them that, but twist it this way mm-hmm. or do it just a little bit that way. You know, so it's it's the partial things. Um, the idea of birth is that in and of itself is a beautiful idea that new life would come to be that's it's springtime it's it's new you know to baby it's that moment it's that all of that those are beautiful things and she's taken and twisted ever so subtly um to make this kind of whitewashed tomb and so it reminded me of something i heard i don't even know to whom to attribute this and that that makes me sad i heard it in passing it was a podcast that i stumbled upon i listened to a little of it it was a pastor and i don't remember his name and so if, if he's listening, thank you for this. Um, he just put it into such a succinct way. He said that we used to be a people who would spend time uh, talking about and thinking about the question, what would I be willing to die for? Mm. Like, What are the things that I would lay my life down so that my children could have or so that um, the people I know and love in my community could have, right? Yeah. This 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 freedom such that they would be able to pursue what they ought so that they flourish what would i be willing to die for and we've become become a people who now ask the question what am i willing to kill for and that's what came to mind when i read that line yeah that's she different killed. It's a completely different question right death is what costs she she killed so that she could have the life that she wanted. And that's about as bluntly as I could put it. It hurts to say it that way, because I, I, I don't know if Annie or no were here talking to us, if she'd say, that's not what I intended by that. In which case I'd want to yeah. know, please tell me then, what did you intend by that? But when I read it, that's what I read. Um, the destruction of that life was the birth of something in hers, right? It was, it, it, and because it was, to some of that we've heard, you know, I know, 
Robert mm-hmm. George uh, or Scott has talked about the idea of the abortion as a sacrament, you know, as the idea for that, for those who now hold it as the highest yeah. of ideals, it's the, the one most unprotected principle that, and, and I think that's such a, what you just said was so important, right? The difference between what I would die for versus what I would kill for. I mean, in the sense that, mm-hmm. because we, if you have, if you see your existence as the, as the, the highest order of what I do and when I live is the transmission of principles and ideas that are more important to me to the next generation. I exist generationally. I was given information by the generation that preceded me, and it's my responsibility to pass those most important things down to the next generation. What I do in this world, my selfish pursuits, my own personal things, they actually are of much less importance than that I take all of those things that are most important about human existence and make sure they're successfully transmitted to the next generation and they're prepared to take my place when I cease to be. And if my death would be the most effective means of keeping those principles alive, if my death communicates the importance of those principles, and I'll give you a short, as much as I can, a very short example of this for me. I was in Indonesia, we were in the village, uh, up in the mountains, mm-hmm. we were doing gospel rallies on this trip that I did there. And, and uh, they, I was brought in to speak to the universities. And then they found out that for whatever reason, the common Indonesian and I just got along very well. So they set me loose on this gospel rally. They said, the people are responding to you. And I had an interpreter. I didn't speak Javan. So it wasn't like, and so I had my interpreter with me. And we were preparing to this gospel rally in the small. And when I say villages, I mean villages. I mean, in these, these places that don't have access to water the same way that we do up in the mountains. They don't really see white people. They call us bullies. We're like celebrities because we were basically freaks. They just weren't used to seeing us. And, and I was, they were busing people from three other villages into this gospel rally. And when I went out to the entrance to the city where they were bringing them in this small little village and this road, there were armed guards, guys carrying machine guns. And I walked up and said, well, that's curious. So I asked my translator, would you ask them why they're standing at the entrance to the village with machine guns? And he said, he asked them and he turned around to me and he said, they told me that there are some very fundamentalist Muslim areas up here in the mountain and they are aware that you're here and going to be speaking. And so they think that they just better be here in case they show up and try to kill us all. And that was the first time I've ever heard this before I spoke anywhere. So I asked them, I said, could you ask me, do they think there's a good chance that they're going to come tonight and try to kill us all for talking about the, the gospel? And he turned around and he talked and he said, they don't think it's a good chance, but they say it could happen. So they just want to be prepared. And mm-hmm. when you're, when, when, when the gospel presentation for the first time in your life has actually comes with a warning, you may be caught up in like machine gun fire before this whole thing is over because there's a rally of people coming to kill you. It's a different sense of how you take it before you get up. They may literally kill you for what you're doing tonight. And yeah. When I heard that and I processed it and my translator said, you all right, bud? Because he could see I was mulling over what I'd just been told. The thought that I had was, if my kids knew one thing about me, that the gospel was so important to me that I was willing to die to present it to a bunch of people who have never heard it before, that's about as good as it can get, right? I mean, that's about the best message that my death could send. So if, if they're there and if they're coming and if tonight's the end, then my death has a message that it wouldn't have in any other context to the people who come after me. That's how much the gospel means. I would die to pass it on to someone who's never heard it before and see that death as ultimately a good thing because it speaks at least of the importance of what we're talking about. And so when you say that's what I'm willing to die for, there are things that I'm willing to die for. 
And then to juxtapose against that, what you're willing to kill for is such a different thing, right? Because then I had a conversation with them immediately mm-hmm. after about the machine guns. And I was like, so mm-hmm. what are we, what are we doing with those? And they would not be, I mean, they were like, we're going to protect the village. I was like, okay, because I, because I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of you killing somebody for the gospel. Right. And, and so we had to have a conversation about that, which they rejected me all hold. I mean, they're like, yeah, yeah, you have your own problems, bud. We're going to protect our village. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Okay. There you go. Um, well, you tried in that sip, but that's an incredible story. I had not heard. I've heard a lot about your trip to Indonesia, but not that. That's incredible. Um, I won't cry. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's just a moment like that. That's because it's yes, yes. Um, so just and I didn't hijack your, yeah, you're making it. points and I hijacked no, no, no. it for a moment. It's, Sorry about that. You did. You told that you couldn't have done it more perfectly because I think I can, we can go like this. Now we can bring all the little strands together. Um, so we've talked about the power of narrative, how we, how these terms like freedom, sex, and love are, are defined in such a lesser way by our culture and what that costs us. At least we, we touched mm-hmm. on that. And then that no matter how the story tries, it cannot be beautiful yes. because of the nature of the event, the nature of the story. It informs um, on itself. So Yes. And so to put what we just talked about, your story, and then my words prior to that, um, my, my favorite professor from grad school was um, John Mark Reynolds, and who was mm. just an interesting guy <laughs> um, and brilliant. But he said, um, he, he was the one, first one who challenged me in terms of thinking about beauty differently, because he said that, you know, we think we live in a culture that's obsessed with beauty. But if you ask someone what beauty is, they define it so narrowly that really we live in a culture that's starving for beauty. Peter Kraft has said something like that as well, um, the philosopher. But he also, then John Reynolds said that we live in a culture of death disguised as the culture of life. And what he meant by that was, if you ask someone, do you care about life? They are bound to say, yes. But when you clarify, it is my life. I care about my life and preserving yes. my life. Yeah. And we have this obsession with youth and we have this obsession with transhumanism and immortality. And can we make ourselves go on and on and on? And so all of that to say, if we tie all these things together, we want to leave people with, well, what do we do about this? I mean, with regard to abortion, Christianity still tells the better story because it tells the story of the intrinsic worth of every human being. But it also tells the story a culture that can love women as women and children as children and not women as someone who because their essential nature involves the ability to bear children though not all choose to do so um, and that's a freedom that god gives us to marry or to not marry to have children to not have children um though he though though our culture thinks that it loves women well what it really does is treat that essential part of our nature as a handicap by insisting that to love women yeah. well, we must have unrestricted access to abortion. That in order to succeed, this part of your biology must be suppressed. That's not a culture that loves women as women. And there are others who've written this more eloquently than me, because Queen, um, Nancy Piercy's talked about this a bit, like other people, but I'm much more interested in a culture that changes to better fit the bodies of its inhabitants than one that we fit our bodies to try and, you know, to be successful yes. in. Does that, I hope I'm articulating this well. So what does it look like? 
I tell young girls this often and they're kind of captivated with the idea because they're the ones who are going to go on and do this. And some of them have 10 ideas at the end of the conversation. You know, what do our institutions look like when they're more friendly to women as women and children? When yep. children are an accepted part of the community, when we understand that babies cry, that's what they do. That's not an inconvenience or it can be, but it, it's they're welcome members of the community. So we yeah. all roll with it. They're right? babies. Um, right. They and cry. it reminds me of the. <laughs> when did that become such a terrible thing? It drives me nuts. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I see no, people all the time. Like they, they see a baby crying or they hear a baby crying like, oh, and they, I mean, I get this again. But yes, this, mm -hmm. the next generation, life, human beings flourishing. Yes, this again, it's what they do. They're babies and you should yep. be happy. But we're so caught up in our own moment. Yes, and they're, those babies are being taught self-control, just like the person who's frustrated about the crying. <laughs> like, it's like we're all learning together. Um, no, but I reminded just a couple quick things. One, a, a photograph I saw of a public library desk with a small play area attached to it. Mm. It was a, a desk for a working parent, like for nice. a working mom who could bring yeah. her toddler. I saw a video on YouTube of a professor in class. Mom's got her newborn, the newborn yes. starts crying. She's Love trying that. to this, shake up the bottle. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the professor does not even stride. He, it was a male, walked yep. over, scooped that baby and the bottle up and just kept on teaching. Taught like, the class while stop. he held the baby and bounced him so the baby stopped crying. Yeah, that was beautiful. And it brought tears to my eyes because he, it, that professor in that class all were like, hey, mom, we see you. This is cool. Like, yeah, and, and, what and, is that world look like? And here, here we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to cut this short. And, and so I want to go, yeah. I'm going to make one more point and I'm going to give you the last word and then we're going to go on because I think you, okay. you hit it so well a second ago when you said, what does it look like? And that's what I was actually thinking thinking, I'm glad you came to that point because I was thinking about that exact same thing earlier when we were talking and I wanted to get back to it. So this will be my closing point because I think that as I've lived this long life now at this point, what I've seen is that the culture and the, what the culture of the faith is have, have, have gone more divergent. There used to be a time where there seemed to be some overlap in the Venn diagram and we could say, let's meet in this little area over here and we can have a discussion about what we ought to be and where we agree on certain mm -hmm. principles. Is, is that agreement has become less and less so the the idea that we it, here's where i have gone to i used to be the kind of guy that tried to get along in the middle and now i say we are just something different uh, the christian world is different than the world that you've created they they cannot coexist with each other and in everything that we have that you want we have a better version of it we have better sex we have better love we have better friendships we have better generational understanding but we are better our version of it the version we're given of it, the christ is better in every way and you are you are missing out by pursuing these other things, this other way. And, and the, the way that she, and I've said this several times, right? When we come to this place where for Annie or no, she has this future of what she wants to be on the one hand, this idea of herself, these goals, these, these aspirations. And on the other hand, there's a human life that exists within her. And only one of those things is real. And that's the yeah. human life that's in her. The other is not. And she would mm -hmm. destroy the reality to pursue that, which isn't even real, which doesn't even exist in this way. And that's the world where we live in, in the sense that we glorify the pursuit of what's not real and what can, in most cases, can never be achieved to the point that we would destroy those things that are real, the human beings that we exist to take care of, to cherish, and to honor. And, and Charles James Fox was, was one of the abolitionists. And we have in our mind, when we talk about the abolitionists in England, uh, we, have, we have guys like William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, these, these 
guys who are both virtuous and abolitionists. Charles James Fox was not that. He was not the virtuous guy. Michael Gambone played him in the movie uh, Amazing Grace. And he's worse than mm -hmm. what you see in the movie. He's sort of a scoundrel, universally known about that, not a godly man. Uh, but but he very early became to be a, an abolitionist and, and didn't care for it. He was the first person that I read when I was reading those abolitionists that flat, flat out came out and said when he met resistance, the world as it exists today is built on slavery, particularly the American enterprise is what they were arguing with him at the time. We cannot have the England that we have without that. And his response was, if the American enterprise, in fact, if all of the way that we live is dependent upon that, then let it die. Let it go mm -hmm. away. And let's get to mm -hmm. building something better. And that's where yeah. I think we've reached now today when we talk about the, when we go back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, and they say a whole generation of women have been raised to believe that they have abortion access as a way to make plans for who and what they want to be in this world to pursue who and what they want to be. And we see this and hear this. And even now as Dobbs falls, we hear that we have always had it. That's the way we're going to plan. And, and let me say again, 75 to 80% of women are not going to get an abortion in the United States during the course of their lifetime. It's still a minority sure. of people that are getting it, but we're told that they have to have it and that the world in which we live cannot function without it. Well, mm -hmm. I think a more life affirming life cherishing, a cherishing world is better anyway. So if the world in which we exist is dependent upon abortion, let it die. And let's get mm -hmm. to the business of building something better. Because in everything you think you have that you enjoy, Christianity offers a better version of it. And in yeah. every way that we live in a society, if it affirms the value of all human life, even if somebody rejects Christianity, let me promise you this. A, a, a world that affirms the value of every single human life and draws us to greater duty and responsibility to each other, greater obligation to each other is better for everyone. Even if it means yeah. we lose some things we think we can't live without and now leave you for the yeah. last word. Oh man. I don't know if I could say it any better than that. Um, I think that I can just sum it up by saying that this is why this is why we do what we do, mainly because somebody needs to and do it. Um, yep. But I come back to it again and again, and I'm able to read things like this and to have the conversations that leave you exhausted for days after, um, because you're, you you carry those people with you. Yep. Um, you know, apart from Christ, it, it, we are no different, no different from any or no or anyone else. We yep. all need a savior. Um, we all need to understand that the technology that we have here and now is morally neutral in and of itself, great tool, terrible master, but yep. it perpetuates this lie that we can conduct life as we want it. Um, and it will never go well on our own terms. It's still the Christian story that is the better story. And we have it within us. Those who are believers who are watching, like that's the story you have to tell others about themselves. Those who are not, I just encourage them to explore it um, time and time again. It just, it just blows me away. And it's, I think, I think that beauty is the key. Truth and goodness are always there. You can't have those without the one without the other, but beauty will save the world. We'll let Dostoevsky have the last word. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much. I would, I, there's so much more I want to talk about, but with, but we have to, we have to stop sooner or later. Right. I mean, unlike yep. the, these, these conversations <laughs> are meant to model the way we talk to each other. And this is the way that we talk to each other. Well, at the same time, 
as all of our conversations have, they almost all end like this. When you and I are on the phone and I say, I have to go, I have some other thing I have to do. I would love to tear <laughs> here and to talk longer, but it just, the day demands I move on. Uh, at the end of the day, happening is a great way to look into the mind of people who are struggling and who believe that abortion is an answer. It's a reset button It make in their, in their mind. I want to get back to the path that I was on prior to finding out but I think that we both agree that at the end of the day, it tells on itself. It is not a beautiful story. And it, and it is a past that we couldn't go back to, shouldn't go back to, won't go back to, no matter what position you're on, because it's anachronistic in the sense of how the world worked at that point. But it's, it doesn't offer for me a justification. What it offers uh, is a tragedy, a story that's a, a tragedy that I'll live with, and I appreciate the honesty of it. Uh, but I think an honest reading of it sees it there's an ugliness there that can't be hidden with an appeal to, but didn't it turn out great for me? I ultimately won the Nobel prize at what cost? Cause that night was just horrifying. Thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. It's always a pleasure. All right. We'll find it. We'll find an excuse to get you back on soon. God bless you. Okay. Bye. Thank you again for joining us, listeners. Thank you again for joining us, those who are joining us on YouTube. We appreciate your audience. If you're enjoying this material, please please uh, uh, visit merelyhumanministries.org and feel free to contribute to the production of this with a gift to our organization. Every gift to our organization goes to creating resources and to producing uh, the opportunities to speak in front of audiences. And, and so we appreciate every gift that we get. And it's our pleasure to be able to put this. This has been a great, I have enjoyed this episode with all the difficulty that we had. And there's more difficulty that we've had in this than any other episode we've ever tried to produce. And it was one long episode that turned into three episodes. But at the end of the day, it's been a joy to work on this material. We've had so opportunity to cover so much, uh, even through the jackhammering and the, the problems with microphones. Uh, and it just, it's rich. This is a rich opportunity. This is a this is a project that we started at Merely Human Ministries to see if we could find a way to engage. And the audience has been small as we expected at the beginning, but we have gotten some tremendous feedback. And so just at this point, it, it's a time to stop and thank everybody who's reached out to us that's listening, everybody who's experiencing this, who's enjoying the content. Please share, let others know, and know that there's more coming, not just new podcast, but we will go back and revisiting old podcasts and pulling sections and segments out so, so they're offered in shorter bites. We'll be looking for opportunities to pull even shorter things out of those where if something was particularly, one of our guests said, maybe just hit particularly well in a very short form, we'll pull that out and make that available both at our website, on Facebook, on Instagram, and even, yes, it sounds as if we are venturing into the world at some level or another of TikTok. We're going to try to make all of the material that we're producing here in this long form, which we will not abandon. I love long form conversations, but we're going to take all of this and try to offer it also in smaller increments to everybody. So thank you to the audience that is growing. Thank you to all of those people who have let us know that they're enjoying the material. Thank you to all of the guests who have come on and know that we are excited about what this means as far as the opportunity to take things on in a serious, hopefully thoughtful, and hopefully conversational manner uh, that enriches everyone involved. 